Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Mark Haldane is the managing director, CEO of Zampezi Delta Safaris. He operates in one of the most pristine wetland areas in the world essentially the Marameo in Mozambique. It's the delta floodplain of the Zambezi River. It's essentially akin to the Florida Everglades. Not as big, but from a wetland perspective, just as magnificent. Mark has been the spear tip of one of the greatest conservation success stories on the planet. The resurrection of wildlife, the resurrection of big cats, the 24 Lions Project, and now a cheetah reintroduction into the Marameo. Mark is a hunter. Mark is a conservationist. And this conversation just gives you a little bit of insight to what happens on the ground in Africa and asks some pretty pertinent questions that I know we've been hit up a lot from a Blood Origins perspective. <laughs> Perfect. Where are you right now? South Africa? Or I'm in South Africa, yeah. Sitting at the dining room table. Where in South Africa do you live, Mark? Uh, next to Hilton College. I'm on a little small holding. Is that um, 
that's in KwaZulu Natal, right? Yeah, correct. But yeah, I had a um, I had a very good family friend who went to Hilton College. Okay, a boy went and boarded there. Yeah, yeah, no, they they my neighbour. <laughs> um. So man, welcome, dude. Just, just man, we've been trying to catch up, and we the the show season has been incredibly busy. I yeah, know sure that, that has, it's definitely sure a crazy has, busy for you, right? Yeah. The um, I woke up. Uh, typically, I'm uh, drinking good whiskey whilst I'm doing these podcasts, but right now it's it's a different kind of brown liquid, black <laughs> coffee. Well, Mark Aldane, why don't you introduce yourself to the Blood Origins podcast, my friend? Okay, um, I'm Mark Eldane, uh, CEO of uh, Zambezi Delta Safaris in Mozambique. And the best thing about the Zambezi Delta Safaris is that the um, you encompass one of the most pristine wetland areas in the entire world. Perfect. So you're going to have to spoon feed me a bit of what I what I got to say. Hey, do I need to go on and say that? No, no. We, okay, let's start again because you seem very like abrupt right now. <laughs> I want to have a conversation, just a general me and you sitting around a fire conversation. Okay, and we're gonna we're gonna what are we gonna cover? The, the conservation in the delta, or or what? Let me put my phone on silent. I think we'll just let the conversation decide where it wants to go. Okay, <clears throat> good. Like, let, let, me, let me loosen up a bit. I should have had my whiskey, and I would have been better, right? Yeah. <laughs> You are very uh, one-word answered, Mark. No, I, mean, I started when I started. Well, listen, let, <laughs> I started let me like, get stuck oh my in. gosh, it's going to be a long podcast. Let, let me get stuck in, and then you tell me what else I've got to put in. So I'll just have a have a general a general conversation. No, you How's get that stuck sound? in, man. Look, and yeah, a general conversation. I'm going to push back a little bit. I'm going to emphasize a couple of elements. Okay, um, perfect. All that kind of stuff. So don't worry about it. All We're right. going to start again. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm Mark Eldane, uh, CEO and owner of Zambezi Delta Safaris in uh, coastal Mozambique. Um, Zambezi Delta Safaris operates in Katade 11, which is one of the old original um, hunting blocks. It's an area of half a million acres. And what is incredibly unique about the area is it has an incredible diversity of habitat, apart being. Um, Part of one of one of the uh, finest intact wetlands um, on the east coast of Africa, Katali Eleven encompasses that that wetland or swamp as we refer to it. It uh, goes into um, floodplain and then uh, tropical savanna, which is your typical savanna with palms and lush grasses, then into uh, pristine sand forest with huge mahogany trees and msasa, and then into more open miombo woodland. So mm, what that lots of diversity, hey? Is, uh, sorry, what's that? Lots of diversity. It's got an incredible diversity, and of course, with the incredible diversity in habitat, we've got an amazing, amazing diversity with species as well. Um, starting off with a little Livingston Sunni blue diker. Uh, red diker, all the way through the elephant. Um, so, yes, we have a, a great diversity right throughout the antelope species as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I knew about you before I knew essentially what a kutara was 
because I'm a wetland ecologist. That's what I did by training. And the Marameo to me was the place. It is the place. It's almost like the Everglades of Africa, right? Nobody really knows how big an area this is, but this is essentially the delta of the Zambezi River. When a river hits <clears throat> the coast, it spreads out, becomes this like real de deltaic system and slows down and floods areas and big floodplains. And the Marameo is that place to me that is just one, it's a massive wetland, massive swamp, amazing place. But then obviously my history with my family, my grandfather immigrating to Mozambique in the 50s, being a big hunter, was one of the first professional hunters with Safari Landia. I don't know if I told you the story, but you one of the original professional hunters yeah. with Safari Landia and Wally Johnson and Harry Manners and shot a lot of buffalo, you know, and I've always wanted to hunt a buffalo. And I told you, when I come to Mozambique to hunt a buffalo, Marameo is the place for, to do it for me specifically because of those two parts of my life sort of intermingling at that point. Yeah, I, I think that um, you've definitely got a history there that you're going to have to you're going to have to revisit. Um, just a, a little thing on 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 the the uh, buffalo before the war, um, which really got going in the late seventies. There were about forty five thousand buffalo in the delta, which is a relatively right. small area, um, making it one of the highest concentrations of Cape buffalo in Africa. During the war, it became the meat locker for um, the Russians that were involved, the government forces, and the rebel forces. And um, it was absolutely plundered. Um, rumors of Russian gunships um, slinging uh, buffalo out and all sorts, uh, you know, what's true and what's urban legend, I'm not too sure. Mm. But I can tell you when I got up there in the early 90s, the first wildlife survey only revealed 1,200 buffalo remaining in the delta. Mm. I think what happened Amazing. was there were probably little pockets of buffalo that were isolated, and they gradually gravitated back towards the delta. Um, and we've seen a remarkable recovery over the years. We, At the moment, we are roughly seeing an increment of about 1,500 buffalo a year. And last year's wildlife survey... Um, we had just shy of twenty five thousand. Um, going back to the to the the delta as um, as a wetland, quite remarkable. It has a a river called the Rio Saloni that flows from the Zambezi when the Zambezi is in flood into the delta, which is one of the main feeder rivers during a flood situation. The remarkable thing about this river is it's so uh, level that when the, when the level of the Zambezi drops, the same river drains the, the delta as well. So it's a river that essentially flows in both directions. Because wow. of Kaborabasa, Lake Kaborabasa and Kariba, the uh, delta doesn't flood as regularly as it, as it should do. Um, and also the constant flow has scoured the riverbed, they say, to about six feet below the historic levels. So we need mm. a really big flood for it to flow in. But in recent years, with all the cyclonic activity we've had in the region, we've, we've seen the Delta flood pretty well most years. Mm. Um, so it's still pretty much intact. Um, prior to the war with the 45,000 buffalo, most of the scientists would agree that the population of buffalo was too high. 
and the size of the buffalo was quite um, severely impacted. Um, just on horn size, they said the average buffalo was about 32 inches. Um, mm-hmm. Most scientists agree now that carrying capacity is probably around about 25 to 30,000 buffalo. So you're right at carrying capacity so right now. So we're pretty close to carrying capacity. And on a driest year by November to beginning of December before those rains hit us, you'll see the, the, the grass has been totally mowed down in, 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 mm-hmm. in the actual wetland area. So I think we've So Mark, let's talk about that. So how do you, for those that are listening to you right now, did that just come by accident? The fact that it went from 1,200 to now 25,000? It was, you let, you let Mother Nature do what, what she does best, right? You just left her alone. Yeah. And 1,200 Cape Buffalo became 25,000 Cape Buffalo, correct? Well, Robbie, not really, hey. Um, unfortunately, we have the human factor in Africa nowadays. And um, so the first thing that we did was once we were back in our area, um, we established, once we were issued with Qatar 11, which was in 92, we started off with a tiny little anti-poaching unit. It was five, five members. And we started offering the game some sort of protection. This slowly grew as our operation grew and as the game came back, um, uh, so, so did our anti-poaching unit. And uh, it, it was very successful and we managed to protect the core and slowly work outwards. And animals like, you know, the little Sunni flourished un- under this conservation. Even things like warthog, which we barely saw in the early days, bounced back pretty quickly. Um, there is a phenomenon that um, uh, a wildlife scientist explained to me that in areas throughout the globe where game is absolutely decimated, once it's um, received some protection, the little pockets of game that remain tend to gravitate back towards areas of, of um, um, prime, uh, uh, the, where the environment is prime for them. And where they feel safe. Is it just because protect- of? Is it just because of the environment coming back, the resources, of the environment coming back? Because they wouldn't know. You know, let's just be honest. Wildlife doesn't know that they're getting protected. Well, I think if you take it just simply, if you have a pasture with with a ten antelope in it, call them sable, and every day somebody harasses them, and you oh, have okay, another okay. pasture with ten sable and with nobody harassing them. The 10 in the area that aren't being harassed are going to be more inclined to stay and make that their territory than the ones that are getting harassed every day. So I think Fair enough. I think that's kind of what happened. And by, by luck, um, um, our environment was absolutely suitable. So we saw game gravitating back towards um, our area, even if it was tiny numbers in the early days, which sort of set up our seed population which in turn we protected, and the seed population did better and better. Um, after sort of 10 years, I realized that there was no ways that we would actually keep this pace up if we didn't somehow involve our local community, um, who were pretty much, mm-hmm. uh, we just pretty much controlled them as best we could so that they couldn't poach. But there was no direct benefit from them back in those early days um, from living alongside the wildlife. 
we started off with things like a school um, and probably most importantly, a, a, a meat drop, where we took the little bit of meat that we required for our camp and the rest was uh, divided up and distributed to our local community. As the game numbers grew, so did the volume of meat grow. And to give you an idea, we have about 1,200 people living on the fringe of our area. Um, no one in the central area anymore. They've all willingly moved out. And they receive about, uh, last year was 34 tons of fresh meat over a period of seven months. Uh, and what it equates to is about a 10-pound block of meat per family every week. Obviously, in the peak season, it's a little higher. And in the early mm -hmm. season, it's a little lower. But it's, mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest um, uh, benefits for our local community. And it's actually taken away the reason for them to poach for subsistence, especially during those eight months. But so, you don't just have meat. You have like honey programs. You have fishing programs. You have all sorts of things, right? Well, basically, we had to expand on that because that would only feed them for sort of eight months. So one of the other programs we have, we have a community rice farm, which is about 160 acres, um, and it's divided out between each family. Um, what we do is we, we do the plowing for them on an annual basis, and we supply them with fertilizer. In return, um, they have to uh, limit the slash and burn. Um, I'd like to say stop, but I'm being realistic here. A few areas do still practice it, but we've probably cut the slash and burn um, down within our area by about 85 to 90%. Um, so we get, a, we get a good crop of rice every year. On top of that, we have a fishing program where we license residents from our area to fish in the Delta for, for barbel catfish. They can't use nets. They have to use a fishing hook. So it limits taking out all the tiny fish. And we, mm -hmm. we allow them to go to different areas so as to um, rotate the areas that are being fished. Um, then we have the community beekeeping program where family units will be given hives. Depending on how well they look after them, we'll up the number. And it equates to around about half a year's salary on the minimum wage um, and the value of honey that we guarantee to buy back from them. So all in all, what we had to create was that our local community saw a huge benefit by being involved with the safari operation and living alongside wildlife. And that was definitely the turning point for us. Um, of course, it's hard to to ever totally stamp out poaching, but we've certainly changed the hearts and minds to a large degree. And uh, I would say we have reduced poaching by at least 90%. And the old days of the big commercial poachers where 10 guys would come in and kill 50 animals and have transporters running it out, those days are over. We'll pick up mm -hmm. the odd couple of snares here and there where someone's just come in set some snares along the border and then left and then come in the next morning. That's kind of our biggest issue at the moment. But, but who are those guys, Mark? Are those guys, are those guys people that are the 1,200 that are on the fringes of, of, the, of where you live? Or are those guys that just, they're coming in from somewhere else? Because you'd think that the community, you would think, obviously there's a couple of people that are never going to be happy, right? But um, 
you've almost provided everything that they need. Um, and Romeo, I don't mean to sound I don't mean to sound very imperialistic yeah. here. Uh, it does sound that way. Well, you know, and we, we've got a—they uh, call him a, a regular, but he's the, the chief of our area, the tribal chief. And recently, one of the television shows came to um, to to watch the um, the release of of the cheetah that we did in the Delta. Right, and they interviewed right. him and they asked him, "Is it what's it like living alongside lions and elephants and and now cheetah?" And his rep- reply to him was that we all benefit from the wildlife. And he said, I can assure you that not a single person in our community goes to bed at night with an, em- with a, with a, with an empty stomach. So, um, which was, he wasn't prompted to say that that came out of his own, own mind. So, you're absolutely right. Um, very little of our poaching comes from our own community. I'd like to say none, which isn't true. There is a little, there are a couple of scallywags in there that, that do poach more for sale than for subsistence because they don't need it. But majority of the serious poaching um, threats that we have along our border are from outsiders um, trying to come in and and they 100% commercial poachers. They're looking for meat to smoke and dry and sell. And that's it. Does the community not know that? Does the community, because you would think that they have eyes and ears everywhere, right? Like, oh, these guys have just come in from somewhere else. Yeah. Robbie, um, the com- our community is, is situated in one area. So unless they come in through that area, um, mm, they no won't always know. And also we have a very good network of informants now. So a lot of our anti-poaching is actually planned based on information that we've managed to gather. So within some of the communities that are outside of our area, and not directly related to to our, our local community that we support, we have informants that are in one way or another on the payroll. And that's actually how we operate to a large degree with the poachers. No, it's a fantastic story, man. Um, and it's a story that's told over and over and over again all the way through Africa, right? And this idea that you came across you know, again, after a number of years, like we can't do this by ourselves. You have to involve the community. You have to engage the people. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, you said something very astute earlier that was, and maybe, again, this sounds maybe a little imperialistic, but how do we, how do I maybe have a discussion along this line that you said, we allow them to come fish you know, but that's their land, right? And we are almost the. It, it, it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a very unique paradigm in that you are the steward of that land. You are the concession owner of that land. They are technically the. Would they would they be the owners of the land, Mark? Well, I know the government Robbie, that's, is. But... That's quite a quite a uh, quite a good question. So, if you go into the law, a hunting katara is a is a. Um, is a government hunting block that we obviously pay the right to stay in there. Now, they're not meant to be any people living within a katada, but it's way too political, so they'll never, ever move them out. Um, the government won't move them out, and they've been too entrenched there, and to be honest with you, it wouldn't be fair to move them out. So what we've done in our block is we have 
encouraged everyone to move to the fringe, to one area where we have the clinic, the school, the rice farm, etc., etc. And we have achieved now to move everybody to that area, which is relatively small. It's an mm -hmm. area of around about 5,000 acres in comparison to the whole half a million acres. But they, so the ground is owned by the government, not by the tribe. It's a government concession. There shouldn't be people gotcha. living inside. Gotcha. So they don't have any rights to the area. But I think one has to be realistic on that. And, you know, these folks have lived through the war when there was no protection yep. and you had to survive. And they've come out through the war. Um, I mean, they, they, they're incredible folks for what they've been through and how they've managed to survive. So we decided it's a lot easier to work with them in a sustainable manner. And uh, mm -hmm. we started off with the community quota. We campaigned, government said, look, we have an excess of certain animals. Um, how about giving us a community quota, which won't be any part of trophy hunting. But for example, we at the moment we get 25 reedbuck and 25 waterbuck. So over and above the meat that we distribute, those 25 reedbuck and 25 waterbuck are delivered with the entire carcass, the skin, the horns, the everything to the community. They distribute it themselves and they utilize it themselves. So I think if everybody's benefiting from the concession, it makes a lot it makes the job a lot easier on the conservation side. Right. Um, we've heard our old One chief of the again um speaking positively almost on the ownership side about the lions, where most populations of rural people um, have a huge vendetta against things like lions. Um, our guys are here and boasting about them, you know, mm -hmm. telling a government official, a minister or someone like that is, man, you must see how well our lions have done. We've got 70 now. Um, mm -hmm. Incidentally, I'll tell you a funny story about the lions. Um, when we came to bring them in, the wildlife department approved everything, but they said the final straw was our local community had to agree because they would live alongside them. So we thought, man, this is going to be a real big blunder for us because I can't see them all uh, doing this. So a local scientist in Mozambique called uh, Dr. Carlos Bento, wonderful man, runs the museum in Maputo and is passionate about wildlife. I asked him if he'd be prepared to come up and consult with me and talk to the local community about the ultimate benefits of having a balanced ecosystem and bringing things like lions back in. So he did. And the first evening he came back and he said to me, Mark, I've got to tell you, we hit the jackpot. I said, wow, what are you talking about? He said, well, the local folks here, as you know, are of the Senna tribe. Now, they have a belief that all these strong leaders, when they die, they become lions, and they become spirit oh, lions. Not lions in the flesh, but spirit lions. And when he said, when I started my consultation, the group of leaders that I spoke to immediately said, do you know that our ancestors have been troubled because of the lack of lions in this area? Are you they serious? They will only be happy again when we have wild lions in the area. So without yeah, even amazing. upon it, we stumbled upon an amazing scenario. And today we have a ceremony once a year where all these leaders um, consult with the spirit lions, and it's always been positive.
So uh, that's amazing. Yeah, amazing story and how well it worked out. Mark, I want to go back a little bit to the community quota because yep. we get a lot of questions through Blood Origins around you're you're essentially denying when you go hunt in Africa and you create these concessions, you're essentially denying the locals' ability to hunt themselves. And our response is always, it's different. It's not like America where hunting is recreational, okay? Hunting in Africa really is for survival. Like people have to hunt. If they want food, if they want, food, they want meat, they, they are forced to hunt. Do you find in this community quota, because you live and breathe it, do you find that the community wants to hunt it? Oh, they're just happy to get it. Robbie, that's funny because that was one of the questions from the wildlife department. They said, well, we're going to have this community quota. How are you going to manage it? Because really the local community could hunt it themselves. And that's going to be disruptive on your safari operation. I said, no, we've consulted with the local community about it. And they actually wanted nothing to do with the hunting of it. They wanted it to be delivered to them. Um to be hunted by us. Which and makes delivered. sense, right? Sorry. It makes sense. It does. So it wasn't so much that they wanted to hunt this for the sport or for anything else. It was purely the necessity for meat. And this fulfilled the, the, the uh, necessity for meat. So I can totally understand someone's outlook if they look at a block, a hunting block, and the local community are not benefiting from any of the resources from it. Um, why you one would say, well, they would just naturally um, hunt there anyway. But I think if you take the real realistic outlook, is if our area was unprotected, as are some of the areas that border us, that game would probably arguably last three years and you would lose 80% of it. Whereas if we show some form of protection and we use science to decide the quotas and the offtakes, and from those offtakes, our local community benefit 100% from the meat. It's a win-win situation. Everyone has plenty of protein in the form of meat, and the wildlife populations are protected as well. Funny, we feel we are almost at capacity in our area for majority of the plains game species. Um, we're showing a small increase still, but they are repopulating uh, neighboring areas now areas that had no um, animals, for example, sable mm -hmm. or salu zebra, mm -hmm. now they, they're having, you know, they, they're getting good, they're having, showing good populations. So I think we've found a balance. But, Robbie, I think the most important thing is, is we've passed the era when we can have a thumb suck on what one should be taking off or how one should manage. We've got to take emotions out on both the hunting side and the conservation side, and use science. So if my scientist comes along and says to me, Mark, I want you to drop your quota of sable from 30 a year to 20, and he can back it up with science, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to listen to him and pay attention and do exactly what he says, because otherwise it's not going to be sustainable. So we've been right. very lucky in that, in that um, line. We have a full-time scientist, and uh, he is dedicated to the area and passionate. And what's quite funny is he doesn't always agree with me, you know. When I uh, <laughs> want to up something or down something, 
he come along and say, well, the sustainable offtake on, the, on this species is that, based on this population. So you can take that off. And that's it. And we've listened to him. 100%. That's amazing. And it's paid us dividends now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, going back to the whole locals hunting, it, uh, the example that came into my brain as you were speaking was almost akin to someone buying beef from the grocery store here, right? Yeah. Like, if you ask them, would you prefer to go kill your cow yourself or would you prefer the meat to be delivered to you through the grocery store? Yes. 100% of people would say, no, we want the meat delivered through the grocery store. Because I think you're right, yeah. Because we don't have to go do it, right? There's, that's freeing up a, the most, probably the most valuable resource that we have is time. That's it. And these individuals have time now to go do something else. Uh, make another uh, side benefit, a side economic hustle. Yes. Um, and you don't have to worry about the thing that you need for survival, which is the best. Absolutely. Yeah. Just on, on the wildlife numbers, Annette, um, uh, since we brought in the lions four years ago, the numbers have, have exploded beyond what anyone could have predicted. And it's because the area is so incredibly game rich that the lions have had it pretty easy going. Um, majority of our. What lions, do you mean the numbers have exploded? The lion numbers have exploded, or your prey numbers have exploded? They, well, they both keep on building. So the prey numbers, um, crazy. And when I started there in the early nineties, you could go a whole day without seeing a warthog. I don't believe you could go a day now along the edge of the floodplain without seeing two thousand. So numbers have gone pretty crazy on the prey side and continue to increase. But on the lion side, we brought in an original 24. Um, right. And we have, I believe, the actual number that's been counted now is 73. And then we have a couple of lionesses that have shown um, that they have cubbed. It's when they return to one little thicket every day. We have satellite collars on most of them. Um, so we're probably in the region of 80 now. Which in a period of four Mark, years. Aren't is... you worried? Aren't you worried as a professional hunter and outfitter concessionaire that relies on hunting of prey species? That you've introduced a predator now, <laughs> multiple predators that are eating into your economic assets. You know, Robbie, uh, that's a question that many of my colleagues have asked me and even given me a hard time about. But I think if you look at it, let me let me backtrack one one part of it. So these, the, our lion population, about 90% of them live along the edge of the floodplain, within 100 yards of the edge of the floodplain. Easy pickings, huge amount of game. For the last four years, from when we um, reintroduced the lions, we have done a wildlife survey of an area of about 100,000 acres that runs along the edge of the floodplain. The first game count was around about 11,800 animals. We were just counting... Um, the antelope and zebra and buffalo that occurred along that narrow little strip. Um, it's about a fifth of our whole block. We've continued that count every year, and our numbers have continued to grow. Slower now than earlier because a lot of the game is being pushed out of our area due to numbers and, as I said, is repopulating other, other neighboring areas. This last year in November, our last and most recent count our numbers were in the upper 13,000s. So the Lions are not knocking back our game. But what we believe is going to happen is we believe that 
our game um, can outbreed the lions on the floodplains. And the lions, because of their social makeup, it's not like we're going to end up with a pride every mile. You know, a pride dominates mm. the territory and won't allow another pride to infiltrate into their, into their territory. So what will happen is we've got several million acres of ideal habitat that doesn't have lions in. So we believe what you'll find is certainly for the next 10 years, lions will spread out into these other habitats. For example, inland of us, there's an old hunting block called Katada 12. Um, now, Katada 12 was taken over by the Gorongosa National Park, but it has very few, if any, natural lions um, remaining in there. So these lions will spread into there. It's a well-managed area with good anti-protein. Mm -hmm. They'll spread into mm -hmm. there. Katada 10, they've already spread into Katada 10. Um, pretty much we believe that we've got about 2 million acres of prime lion habitat. Right now, the lions are arguably not using more than about 250,000 acres between my neighbors in Katada 10 and ourselves in Katada 11. So we've got a, we've got a, a, a big area for the lions to, uh, uh, to move into as new prides are formed and other prides are pushed out. Yeah, I know. It's an impressive, impressive story. And uh, for everyone who um, doesn't know much about the story, just Google 24 Lions. Uh, I think it's 24lions.org, the Cabela Family Foundation, Mark, and, and obviously Anak, um, really put together, arguably, Mark, the, one of the biggest conservation relocation, restoration projects in the world, right? What else would rival the 24 Lions project? <laughs> you know, I don't know, Robbie, but we had a lot of great help. You know, like you mentioned, the Kabila Family Foundation and unbelievable people. They actually were hands-on. They weren't just writing a check and sitting in America. They actually physically came out and participated in the moves. They come back every year and help us with the recoloring. Um, amazing partners. We've had Ivan Carter's Wildlife Conservation Alliance partnering in with us, and um, the wildlife department have been fantastic uh, with limited resources, but they've supported us every step of the way. So it has been an exciting one, and it wasn't planned that way, but apparently it was the largest move of wild lions over in an international border, which in itself was a hell of a journey and a hell of an adventure. Flying Knowing Dan Cabela, he probably did his research and was like, okay, the last person who moved lions was like 19. I have to do more. <laughs> we have to do more. <laughs> it, it, it could well be, eh? but uh, they've been great partners. And in fact, they partnered with us again on the cheetah. And uh, the lions, uh, you know, we lost the first lion in a gin trap a week after they came in. And I thought mm. to myself, what the hell have you got involved in? But anyway, we turned it around and I virtually had anti-poaching units sweeping the areas wherever the lions moved to until they settled down with their territories. Um, and fortunately, within six months, we had cubs and we started to turn the corner, you know. Mm -hmm. But the cheetahs have been a whole nother kettle of fish. I don't have much hair and a lot of it's fallen out because of the cheetahs. Um, <laughs> apparently, I don't know a lot about cheetahs. I don't profess to, but apparently they work around 
scenting uh, um, spots, markers that they use, that they revisit different cheetah and they'll, they'll, they'll mark them as their territories. And of course, when they were released in our era, there wasn't a single marker anywhere. And these things were like a, a covey of quail that just burst in every direction. And we redarted every single cheetah that we brought in and brought them back. I mean, one of them had gone almost 200 kilometers and was on the beach about 15 Holy kilometers from smokes. Byron. So, I mean, they gave us gray hairs. But what has happened is they've also set up along the floodplain. They were all wild cheetah. And we also stipulated that whatever cheetah we had came from areas that had lion, that they would um, have some knowledge of lions and wouldn't just walk into them. And they've set up all along the edge of the floodplain. And touch wood, uh, the last couple of months, uh, two months have been relatively calm. And uh, we're hoping for, for cubs in the next couple of months to turn the corner there as well. There we go. There we go. Well, what's next, Mark? You're going to like uh, re-genetically engineer saber-toothed tigers and bring them back to the Marameo? You know, I definitely want, a, definitely want a few years to catch my breath. Um, Robbie, we found an amazing old book written by um, a Mr. Morgan, who was a British explorer who uh, w was affiliated to the, to the embassy in Mozambique at the turn of the century. And every year when he took his leave, he went on a hunting expedition and he wrote books about it. So we picked up an old copy of his book and one of his favorite haunts was in our area. Um, even even the rivers are named and maps and all the rest. Wow. So we have an amazing uh, record of what actually occurred back in those days. And ideally, we'd like to return it to, to what it was. Um, we've pretty much already done that with the buffalo because – uh, and the Plains game, he was hunting there after the Rinderpest when mm -hmm. um, the game numbers had already dropped incredibly. So arguably, we've got a lot more game now than he had when he was hunting there. But I know it's kind of an inferior, little worried about species, but side-striped jackal occurred there. Um, we've seen one in the area in the last uh, 26 years that I've been there. Um, so that's one we might look at trying to bring in. Um, we don't need to bring in a wild dog. There is a population already that borders between Area 12 and ourselves. Um, probably the only one that I'm really cautious on is black rhino. Uh, black mm -hmm. rhino occurred there, and it's definitely not something on the horizon yet. Um, whew, yeah, that'll be a, a whole a whole big problem all on its own, but it's definitely something that'll be contemplated if and when the time is right down, down the road. And well, you, that's, you've, that's well, about it. You've then you pretty much have everything that was there prior to the war. Well, you've certainly um, done a yeoman's effort from where you've started to today, man. And there's no, you know, there's no doubt why you don't have any hair left in terms of, you know, <laughs> what you've done and how you've done it. Well, thank um, you, Robbie. It's been a fantastic journey, I must say. And if I had to start again, love to do it all over. No, I'm sure. And it, and it's, you know, that that vision, that horizon goal of, hey, we have this guy's book that was written back in the turn of the century and what it was like and 
the fact that you say we're very close to what it was like, maybe even better yeah. than what it was. No, it's pretty, um, pretty, pretty, pretty great, pretty good feeling. Yeah, and especially from the community's perspective, right? Yeah. You think about what a community was like back then versus what a community has today. Exactly. Um, no, you're quite right. It's hard to argue with. It's hard to argue that wildlife conservation model. And let's be let's let's end this podcast with a very simple question, Mark. How are you? How are you doing it, Mark? Like, who's? How are you able to fund it? Like, where's the money coming from? And obviously, I'm setting you up here. I'm obviously setting you up because obviously this is a Blood Origins podcast. No, Robbie, it is. It's it's important question to ask. Robbie, it is. It's it's an it's a very important question to ask, and it's one that catches so many would be conservationists out because um, you start off with no game or very little game, and there's not enough income derived from it to even make it a profitable operation. And then you have to take a portion of your profits, which don't exist, and plow them back into your hunting. So where we were fortunate, if I go back to the beginning, is we had a well-established safari company already, and we hunted most of the Southern African countries. So we were able to subsidize um, our Mozambique operation with baby steps to start with. It certainly wasn't profitable. You certainly couldn't live off it. But as the game grew, so did our margins. So today, if all of our funding stopped, we would most definitely hurt and we'd have to regroup and come back. But we do a large amount of our conservation from, um, from hunting-derived revenue, just from our profit margin. We take a percentage, and I can tell you quite openly, we, um, we take $100,000 a year. And that's put back into community and um, anti-poaching programs. But to really do it on the scale that we're doing it now, including the reintroduction of species and that, that hundred thousand dollars wouldn't wouldn't ever cut it to move in those lines. So mm-hmm. we've been exceedingly fortunate to have partnered up with with folks like the Kabila Family Foundation, um, Ivan Carter's Wildlife Conservation Alliance. And uh, Dallas Safari Club, those have been kind of our, our anchor donors, for want of a better word, over the years. And Robbie, incredible too, is so many of our of our long-standing clients, you know, will come on a safari and the end of the hunt say, well, what are you guys short of? Say, so, well, mm-hmm. we'd like to start renewing our motorcycle fleet or something like that. Well, I tell you what, I'll buy two for you, you know, and we've heard that so right. many times. And those are hunters paying for conservation. I mean, they're putting, their, they're putting the money where their mouth is and not just sitting in an armchair. So yeah, 100%. we've had incredible support from, from all those folks that I've mentioned, and uh, that's what's made the difference. Well, Mark, it's always a pleasure to see you at the shows. Um, and soon, my friend, maybe not 22, it won't be 22, maybe 23, if not 23, 24, I have to put my feet back in Mozambique. You do. And, uh, you do. We'll hold you and, to that. And hopefully come see you and see the, you know, the, the wonderful success story that you've created. Thank you, Robbie. Much appreciated. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.